Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. For centuries, he provided nourishment for hundreds of families, and for countless winters, his woolly coat sheltered them from the freezing, bitter winds. He was hunted to ensure survival, his body a gift he unknowingly gave in order to preserve the Earth's precious human children, elders, warriors, mothers, and fathers. They thanked him for his sacrifice. What remained of his offering would submerge into the ground so that new life would feed more of his kind. He was more than just a source of survival. He was a partner and a friend. But someday he would be hunted out of spite and for sport and for money, his body eventually discarded as needless filth. And so his kind faced possible extinction. Who would feed and warm the children and the elders? Unfortunately, they too were discarded and they too were facing extermination. But perhaps someday, by some miracle, there would be survivors. And perhaps then life would spring anew with hope, dignity, and strength. He's the American bison. And as this beautiful creature was nearly erased from the earth, we are thankful for their survival. Just as the bison fought to survive, our Choctaw people also live on. Today, their descendants once again partner with their friends, the buffalo, to ensure they are triumphant to carry on in all their majesty and glory. Today's show is near and dear to my heart. I've been a fan of the American bison since I was young, observing them for long periods of time, roaming through the wildlife refuge of Wichita Mountains, and observing them at Indian City in my hometown of Anadarko, Oklahoma. Because of my lifelong adoration of these lovely beasts, I chose the buffalo as my native Choctaw logo. And because my guests today run a buffalo farm, I'm absolutely giddy with excitement about our conversation. I sit here with Amy and Ian Thompson today, who are probably some of the hardest working people I know. Their passion for seeking the most traditional means to conserve their land and environment, for raising buffalo in the most natural of ways, and for striving to bring traditional Choctaw farming and foods back to life is inspiring. Listeners, you're going to learn about so many interesting things today, and I'm assuming you're going to hear about some things you haven't even heard of before. So buckle up and take a ride with me through the Nanawaya Farm in Atoka, Oklahoma. Ian, Amy, and Buffalo friends, halito to you. Halito. Thanks for having me out to your farm today. And listeners, I'll be sure to post photos of my adventures today on my Native Chalk Talk Facebook page so you can follow along on this journey with us. I want to start off sharing a bit about my two guests, and then we'll hop right on in to learn about the buffalo, the farm, and the traditional Choctaw foods, too. Amy Thompson is a full-blood Native American of the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole, and Creek tribes. She's enrolled in the Chickasaw Nation, and her maternal line is the Raccoon Clan. Amy was raised in the Choctaw Nation, where she grew in her faith in God and enjoyed singing Choctaw hymns. She's a Choctaw traditional potter, and she digs her own clay and fires vessels in a wooden fire using her pottery to prepare indigenous Choctaw food dishes. Amy has twice demonstrated Choctaw traditional pottery at the National Museum of the American Indian and demonstrated Choctaw food on a third occasion. She has also demonstrated Choctaw social dancing, stickball, and the traditional wedding ceremony at the Smithsonian, and continues to publicly perform Choctaw hymns. Amy serves on the Choctaw Nation's Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act Advisory Board. She is a custodian in the Choctaw Cultural Center and a majority owner of the Nanawaya Farm. And as for Ian, Dr. Ian Thompson began learning how to chip stone arrowheads from his uncle at the age of seven. He also learned traditional hide work, bow making, pottery, and shell work. Balancing cultural education with a Western education, Ian completed a PhD in anthropology from the University of New Mexico. Ian is a registered professional archaeologist and is certified by the Tribal Council as a Choctaw Community Language and Cultural Instructor. He serves as the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, working with a team to protect Choctaw sacred and historic sites and to help the community to support indigenous Choctaw culture. He serves as Choctaw Nation's lead on the work to create the permanent exhibits for the Cultural Center. 
Ian's most recent book, Choctaw Food, Remembering the Land, Rekindling Ancient Knowledge, was designed to pull together information to help revitalize the indigenous Choctaw foodway. The book was donated to the Choctaw Nation and published by Choctaw Press. In 2020, Ian received formal recognition from the Tribal Council for service and significant contributions to the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Way to go. Ian currently serves as chair of the Smithsonian NMNH Repatriation Review Committee and as president of the Oklahoma Bison Association. Ian and his wife Amy manage Nanawaya Farm, a 21st century experiment in land-based traditional culture. Before we get into talking about the coolest creatures on earth, the American bison, why don't you tell us, um, you know, some high level things um, that you're doing here out on the farm? I know there's quite a bit. We'd love to hear more. Absolutely. So some years back, Amy was diagnosed with a, a form of diabetes. And, you know, that's really common for Native American people. Um, comes about as a result of a colonized diet that most of us eat. So we decided, both of us had eaten traditional foods, some, both of us had an interest. We decided rather than Amy go the route of medicines from Western doctors that treat the, treat the symptoms but not really treat the cause of the disease, we go to more traditional foods and see what happened. So we did. Um, we already raised bison. We already wildcrafted native plants. We already had a garden, but we expanded all of that. And we completely dropped processed food from our diet. And within three months, we'd lost 70 pounds between us. Wow. And Amy was out of the mm -hmm. diabetic range. You know, we've never had so much energy before. We've never felt so good. Mm -hmm. So with that, we started to really buckle down and learning about indigenous Choctaw foods. And we decided to expand our farm, which is where we are now. This is our, our second expanded farm on Alaya. And our goals are to, you know, revitalize Choctaw traditional food, um, to produce healthy food for our community, to restore the native landscapes of this farm and its pastures, and to work to support Choctaw traditional culture. Uh, that's a lot. <laughs> In addition to also having your full-time jobs, it's amazing. Other things that we're passionate about, so it doesn't seem like much. It just, it comes naturally, mostly. Yeah, it comes naturally. It must just be part of who you are and, and something that was born inside of you. You know, your ancestors are probably looking down so proud of what you've been doing here. So where are you located and how can people come visit? Let's see, we are located, um, even though we do have an Atelka address, we are located probably about 10 miles west of Antlers. Uh, basically just probably about a quarter mile or so off, off the main highway, which okay. is Highway 3. So, And people can find us through our website, mm -hmm. www.nonawaya.com, N-A-N-A-W-A-Y-A.com. Yeah, and it wasn't hard for us to find it out here today. You gave good directions, but also my GPS took us here. So if people are, are looking to get on out here, I don't think it would be too hard to, to find you. But also, they need to let you know ahead of time that they're coming, right? They shouldn't just show up at your door. <laughs> that is true. Just to ensure that we're here. <laughs> yeah, right. Please let us know. Please let us know. Please let us know. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. So do kids come out here and, and look at the buffalo and... You know, field trips, anything like that? It's like more like a um, array of people, everybody from from kids to all the way to older adults to come come visit because of the of they're more interested in what we're doing as far as the native rest, restoration. Same time, seeing the buffalo themselves. So yeah. So basically, but what we do hold here is is um, some immersion camps that we have um, within our community with the kids within our community, and um, I don't know, just. Small little field trips and yeah. tours and stuff. Oh, I bet we had love it. a family come out here a while ago, and they brought a little girl, and buffalo's her favorite animal. And she even brought her little stuffed oh. buffalo with her. <laughs> yes. She got to meet them heaven. for the first time. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. That's so cute. And, you know, something that they haven't seen before. I know that they have buffalo at the Oklahoma City Zoo, mm -hmm. but, you know, this is kind of like this way that they can just roam around and and be themselves and enjoy the, the wallows that they make and all that. So it's a totally different scenario than what you'll normally see. So here on the farm, you have four primary goals. Can you tell us more about that? On the farm, we have the goal of producing healthy food to restore the native landscapes in our pasture, to support the Choctaw community, and to, to help reestablish the connection between people and the land in our community. Fantastic. When I said that you two must be some of the hardest working people that I've ever met, this includes, according to your website, 
restoring the native prairie and savanna landscapes of the farm, reintroducing American bison, as you said, offering community cultural activities, creating the Choctaw food book, so excited about that, hosting a blog, building a green home, selling bison meat, and much more, all while continuing to serve in your day jobs for the tribe. How is that all possible? The things that we're passionate about, you know, a lot of it's stuff that we've wanted to do since we were little kids, so really? it doesn't mm -hmm. seem like yeah. work. Doing mm -hmm. something that you don't enjoy is what seems yeah. like work, at least yeah, it does. When you get off work, are you like, oh, I can't wait to get back out to the farm? Oh, uh, pretty much, especially him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Except on days when you're tired. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh. Hard physical work really balances out what I do for my job, which is mostly either sitting behind the wheel of a truck or sitting yeah. behind a computer screen. So, so yeah, true. it balances. I know, and, and most of us do that. We sit behind our computers all day long, myself included, and way into the evening. And this gives you a chance to get really good exercise. And, and plus, you're coupling that with eating healthy, which is, is great. So the farm is called Nanawaya. For those who may not know, what does that mean? It means a place, uh, it's a place of growth. Because basically, it, I guess the reason, um, the name fits perfectly with us because we try to grow more than just the animals themselves. We yeah. try with with native grass restoration, not to mention the other hundreds of animals that's out here. So yeah, <laughs> even some critters you didn't put out here, right? No, pretty much. Some that decided to take up residence. Yeah. <laughs> so. Do you have prairie dogs? I love prairie dogs. We're a little too far east for those. Okay, yeah, we are. <laughs> I say I love prairie dogs. Farmers hate them, probably, but. Yeah. The, the name Nan Awaya comes from Choctaw creation stories. You know, it talks about how God created the bodies of the Choctaw people from clay on the banks of Naniwaya Creek. And this was underground. The Choctaw people came out to the surface through a cave that you can still see today. Mm -hmm. And the bodies of the people, as they were sunning, changed from clay into skin. And that's where God gave Choctaw people our social order for how to live together and how to live with the land. So our, our name refers back to that too. It's the, the place where God created people through the land. Absolutely. That's a perfect fitting name, I would think. And it seems like this land, it, it just, it's, it seems like it's almost untouched. So when you came here, what was that like? What did it look like? Well, it was severely overgrazed whenever we first started here because there was like fields of ragweed and it's a sandy seep. Um, the land itself is sandy seep. So um, basically what that means is like it's, it, it includes a whole bunch of sand within the, um, um, within the area itself. Mm -hmm. But basically, um, whenever we started here, we seen um, several se uh, several tire tracks, probably about three main la lines of several tire tracks. Mm -hmm. um, mainly, I just remember mainly the rag a whole bunch of ragweed all over the place. Oh, <laughs> so, right. Can the buffalo eat ragweed? Uh, no, they cannot. Okay. <laughs> it's, I think it's kind of bitter to them, I think. So oh, they don't want to yeah. yeah. They don't want to eat it. So basically, <laughs> um, that's what it mainly looked like. We had like bear sparses all over the place. And yeah, like a lot of places in southeastern mm -hmm. Oklahoma and, and really the whole United States, the land had been abused. The fertility mm -hmm. had been basically mined out of the soil. You know, it had been logged. It had been overgrazed for years. It was eroded. There was almost no grass on it. There was almost, you know, that's not even to speak of native grass or yeah. a lot of the mm -hmm. palatable forbs. It was in a really bad way. Well, I'm glad there was someone here to come along and, and help improve the land. So it's 120 feet in elevation, and so the farm's uplands are dry from what I was reading on, on your blog, correct? That's right. The mm -hmm. farm's uplands are, are dry and the soil's sandy, like Amy mentioned. Um, those areas were covered in tall grass prairie or in oak savanna in the past. And then the lowlands a sandy seep. Think of kind of like a sandy swamp, and that's a rare habitat type for our area. It's kind mm -hmm. of special. Yeah. Huh. So obviously the climate and environment can change over time. So what do you think this land looked like many years ago? I would say it was probably filled with prairie grass, um, basically a tree. Of course, um, it was an oak savanna, so you, you would have a mixture of the trees inside here too. So Yeah. It has changed through time. If you look at the GLO map from 1899, it was forested. But if you look at accounts and paintings from this area from the early 1800s say the trail of tears time period it was a mixture of grass and trees okay. it, at times in the past it was a lot drier than it is now so i'm sure it would have been like great plains kind of ecozone mm -hmm. but it, it's always changed through time of course mm -hmm. of course so you take on this wild land and how did you even begin to get it ready for the buffalo 
Well, uh, we let it go. We let it go wild for about a year before we put our buffalo on here. So really, okay. just just mainly just as an experiment to see what we had, what plants would come back, and pretty much just give it a a long rest before we before we put the animals on here. So yeah, yeah. And then we fenced it. We cross fenced it into twenty two pastures right now. So we rotate the animals between the pastures, and basically they spend one twenty second of their time on any given pasture, which gives remainder of the land time to rest so mm -hmm. that's a strategy for helping the palatable grasses and forbs to come back from the the seeds that and the roots that managed to survive in the soil all that time sure and how many acres is it 160 acres that's a lot yeah it is quite a bit to cover so <laughs> yes, it is <laughs> and 22 you said 22 pastures mm -hmm. wow so what was it like when you reintroduced the buffalo to this area was it so exciting it was. It was. Yeah, we, we already raised bison at our, our previous farm, but to bring them out here on so much more land, um, I don't know. I was probably, Amy was too, we were thinking about the last time that that type of animal had been here. Yeah, I mean, yes. been Probably the 1830s. So wow. It was special mm -hmm. to us to bring them back here. Very special. And they were probably like, 160 acres, thanks. <laughs> yeah. We can roam around. So they can stretch their legs on compared to the 10 acre farm that we once had. <laughs> yes. Oh, I bet. Mm -hmm. I bet. And so you've stated in the past that the buffalo actually helped in reversing some of the damage that had been done to the land, correct? They helped because of the way that they were managed. You know, bison can damage the land too. If you have too many animals on too small of an area, they can damage it just like cattle. Right. But if you raise them in the right way where the, the land has time to rest between getting impacted by them, then they can be extremely helpful. They do certain things that cattles don't, like they have bison wallows, for example. Um, they like to rub on cedar trees and break them and get that sap on them because it's like an insecticide. It helps keep really? the bugs off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The way that their feet are shaped help to create an unevenness in the soil that helps rain to infiltrate. So they're, they're agents of disturbance, basically. If you let them do what they're made to do, they manage the land for prairie and savanna just naturally. It's amazing. And that sap, I bet it kind of makes their fur get all matted together, right? Not, mm, not too bad. Not too like bad. It, it's not thick glops on them, but okay. they just, they'll like scrape off the bark and then rub on it. And it seems to help keep the bugs off their back yeah. in the summer. Well, when I think about you reintroducing the buffalo to this area, it changes the environment and the climate a little bit over time. And it reminds me of the Yellowstone story where they reintroduced the wolf to the area and it totally changed the whole ecosystem. And so it, it just makes you understand the balance of nature and what it's supposed to be. And here we all come and mess it all up. So it's good to see somebody doing the opposite and, and making it change for the better. So you introduced the buffalo and then what came next? It sounds like you probably had to start thinking about the grasses and what they needed to eat out here and preparing the land for them to be eating, right? So we gave it a few years to see what was going to come up naturally on its own. Actually, we gave it about four years wow. to see. Um, some of the native plants, prairie plants, are really long-lived and really slow-growing. So they may live 100 years, but it may take them four years to grow up from roots or from small seeds to the point where you can actually see them, where they're big enough yeah. to see so we did that for four years, and then different pastures had different responses. Um, there is definitely native remnant prairie here that responded in some ways. Places that had been more degraded responded in different ways than some of the previous landowners had planted invasive pasture grasses. So that responded in a third way. And those four years' time gave us a chance to see how the land was going to respond and then manage it accordingly. And of course, as we're going, it's a place of growth. So we're, mm -hmm. we're learning too from different people and from experience or our techniques change as we go along. Oh yeah, and speaking of techniques, I was reading in your blog that you actually used your hands in a garden hoe in certain cases so that you would do no harm to some of the native plant life, right? That's true. That's right. You know, as we've given the land chance to rest and allowed it to, to rebound with the you know, short-term grazing from the animals, We've had more than 220 native prairie species come back just from what survived in the soil without planting anything. So when we wanted to bring back more plants that should have been here but weren't, you know, there's still certain missing species. It's not like we could just plow the land and then seed those things because we would have destroyed everything that was already here that survived. Uh, yeah. So we had to come up with techniques that were cost effective and effective at getting the plants to grow, but also would not destroy what was here. So one of the techniques out of many we've tried was to go out with a garden hoe and 
pull up a patch of ground about a foot and a half in diameter, pick all the roots out of it, and then plant it with native seeds and then let it grow. So we did, we've done 9,000 patches like that by hand so far. That's that's an effective technique, but there are others that we're experimenting. So now people, now people are going to see what I mean when I say some of the hardest working people I know. It's amazing. Pretty impressive. So as someone who grew up out in the middle of nowhere myself and um, absolutely loved it out there, it was also a little slice of heaven is kind of what you have. But we always had this huge garden and I remember how much work it was in that Oklahoma hot sun. So kudos to you both for the hard work that you do. I'm very impressed. So we're going to come back to the land in just a bit, but now we have something very important to talk about. The beautiful, the majestic buffalo. Before we talk about extinction, let's take a quick look at the history of the bison, especially pertaining to the Choctaw. So something I learned from you was that over the last 10,000 years, the bison who lived across the Great Plains would move east during the dry times and west during a rainier season. And in the 1600s, expansion even went into the Atlantic coast with the Europeans entering the picture. So how many were alive at that time? I know you wrote about this and researched it. So I think it's kind of interesting to think about how many were actually surviving at that time. Certainly. So estimates are 30 to 60 million at that wow. time at their high point. But if I, the, the bison, you know, it's a native animal that separated from cattle about 1.5 million years ago. And then it came to North America around 100,000 years ago or a little bit more. And this was during the Pleistocene, you know, the last ice age. So there were these times of glaciation when areas were frozen over and then interglacials when it got warmer. So the bison's history and the way that it connects with cattle and, and other large grazing animals is through the lens of these, these ice ages where they were separated and adapted to North America and then those separations ended. The bison, you know, it's, it's like looking at the ice age, you know, it, yeah. it's still got the, the remembrance of what the ice age feels like in its genes, the way it grows its coat out, the way that it behaves. Um, most of the Ice Age animals went extinct, like the mastodon and the woolly mammoth. The bison was one of the very few that lived, and it's, mm. it's already survived a major extinction event once, and then it survived another one in the late 1800s. Uh, if, if they're given any chance at all, they, they will thrive and survive. And that is so fascinating because as we go on, we're going to talk about how hardy the buffalo are. And I never tied that back to, hey, they survived an ice age when other animals did not. And to me, they look very prehistoric anyway. So just, they're so cool. So um, at one point, there were 200 head of buffalo in just Choctaw country in East Central Mississippi. And the Choctaw oral history says the Yazzie River Basin until the 1740s. And I've just wondered, do you know what happened in the 1740s that made them disappear from that area? Yeah, so in the, the late 15, early 1600s, diseases from Europe just spread like wildfire among Native American communities. You know, it's estimated that 90% of the Native population died at, at that time as a result of that and colonial conflict. So bison, which had lived mostly on the plains, expanded their range all the way to the Atlantic coast at that time because there wasn't as much hunting pressure. And they lived right in among Choctaw country. You know, at that time, Choctaws developed a bison dance. We participated in a bison hide trade. Um, you know, place names still in the landscape today refer back to bison, like Poa is a place in the Choctaw homeland, and that means where the animals shed their hair. You know, it's a place where they would rub on rocks or trees or whatever, and then Choctaws would go collect the wool and spin it and make it into clothing. Really? That's that's preserved in a place name. There are other places like that, too. But yeah, um, there were herds as large as 200 head in the Choctaw homeland. They'd spend the warm season in the prairie areas. People don't think of the Choctaw homeland as being prairie, but the Black Belt Prairie was located there. It stretched for 40 miles from one side to the other. And then they'd spend the wintertime in the cane breaks, river cane, which Choctaw people managed for baskets and things like that, is one of the best winter forages. So the bison would spend the winters down in that area. Um, they were eventually extirpated from our homeland. It was part of a larger trend. It, you know, across the United States as a result of habitat destruction and overhunting, the bison was pretty much extirpated east of the Mississippi River by about 1820 or so. Mm -hmm. They were gone from the Choctaw homeland by about 1740, and it's recorded in Choctaw oral tradition that they they held out in the Yazoo River Basin last, the west part of Mississippi, and they disappeared as a result of a prolonged drought. And, you know, 
that's possible, be that as it may, but the overall trend was because of habitat destruction and overhunting as to why they disappeared. So it was maybe happening across the country, not just in that area, but... Yes, yeah, east of the Mississippi at that time. Yeah, and we know that Choctaws were also pretty good farmers, too. So I wonder how that changed the way that they were living, how they were surviving and eating. So I assume that they had to just kind of adjust to more farming and maybe going to kill the deer versus as much of the buffalo, you think? So our, our traditional society, you know, it's based on a relationship with the land that tends to be pretty plant-focused. You know, folks think of Native American diets as being meat-focused, but yeah. that's because the Plains Indians get so much attention. For Choctaws, most of the year, plants were the main part of our diet, agriculture or wild plants or wild managed plants. Meat was really a main course meal only during the hunting season. So, you know, just during November, December, maybe January, it was a main course meal, but not the rest of the year. Choctaws focused on hunting a lot at that time because of interaction with the Europeans through the hide trade. So we were encouraged to go hunt animals, hunt bison, hunt deer, and trade the hides in New Orleans and different places. So the bison went extinct in our homeland and the deer just almost did as well in the early 1800s because of overhunting, mostly for the hide trade. So by a decade later, in the 1830s, the Choctaw were removed from their homelands, um, primarily Mississippi as well as a couple other states. And um, via what's now called the Trail of Tears, they were removed from there to Indian Territory, now called Oklahoma. And primarily, I think they settled in southeast Oklahoma, correct? And so did the Choctaw find buffalo in their new home? Yeah, so Choctaws have been coming out to this area since the 1780s to hunt since our own homeland was overhunted. And we'd encountered bison in this area. And when Choctaw people came on the first wave of the Trail of Tears in the 1830s, there, there were bison here. Um, the area was, one of the major features of the landscape was bison trails. People used those to travel on because the bison cleared wow. out the brush in, in you know, linear corridors. <laughs> but um, definitely they were here. You know, there are place names that refer to the bison, like Yanush, located by Tushkahoma, the Choctaw capital. Yanush means bison in the Choctaw language. Here in Atoka County, there's Buffalo Head Hill, which is you know located not all that far from here. But yeah, they were definitely here. That's interesting. So the names that have, are still around today are from back in the day when they first landed here. You mentioned in one of your writings that by the time the Transcontinental Railway crossed the United States in 1869, the great bison herds had been confined mostly to the High Plains in a narrow band running from Saskatchewan to South Texas. And wanton slaughter by railroad men and passengers along the rail line soon compelled the bison to avoid the tracks. This divided the remaining animals into separate northern and southern herds. The southern herd concentrated in western Kansas, Oklahoma, and the Texas Panhandle. The northern herd concentrated in the West Dakotas, East Montana, and Canada. So the buffalo are being pushed around, and not only that, just like the American Indian caught diseases, the buffalo were susceptible as well, right? That's right. You know, it wasn't just human diseases that came like you were talking about. It was also diseases brought by cattle that the bison had no natural immunity to. It was also parasites. Like all of the parasites that we treat our herd for today, they're all invasive. None of them would have been yeah. here 200 years ago. Wow. So now you have diseases coupled with overhunting and having to compete with cattle and horses for land. So side note, though, tell me about the story of when the steam engine met the buffalo. <laughs> There are some accounts from Europeans from the last half of the 1800s where there were these massive bison herds going across the railroad tracks of the Transcontinental Railroad. And they pushed it off. They pushed the train off the tracks on a couple of occasions. <laughs> but the, there are other occasions about the bison destroying settlers' homes completely, like just taking it apart log for logs, trying to scratch on it and rub really? off their, their wool in the summertime. There's an account of... Um, somebody capturing a few bison up in South Dakota and it seemed like a good idea to take them down to Mexico City to fight the famous Mexican fighting bulls. Oh my. <laughs> they, they took them down there and one of the buffalo injured its leg badly on the trip. So like, okay, we'll send him out there and just let the bulls finish him off right at the start. So they put him out in the ring and one of these prized Mexican fighting bulls took a run at him and hit his shoulder and just kind of bounced off. <laughs> and this buffalo on three legs looked at it and the the Mexican bull kind of shook its head. He stepped back and took another run. And this time the buffalo hit him head on and just crumpled the fighting bull to the ground. Are you serious? Before That's it was fantastic. over, you know, this, this buffalo on its three legs was um, 
you know, was chasing around three prize Mexican fighting bulls around the <laughs> ring, hopping on its three legs. This is the best story. <laughs> Sad that they were going to pit the buffalo against the bulls. I mean, now I feel sorry for the bulls, actually. Wow. So that is how strong and tough these buffalo are. <clears throat> yes. They are. They're survivors. Take them down. <laughs> Great story. Thank you. Okay, so the buffalo are being encroached upon in many ways, and they're kind of uh, tearing up people's houses as well. But now they'll face another enemy, those who wanted to purposely exterminate them. So tell us more. There was, uh, you know, sort of a, a perfect storm of events that happened in the late 1800s. There were railroad tracks that were taken to the core areas where bison still live. There were improvements in rifle technology that made them more accurate at a distance. And then there were improvements in technology for tanning the bison hides so that they could be used for carriage blankets or for um, conveyor belts and things like that in the industry in the eastern United States. So those things all converged with a, a desire on the part of colonizers to exterminate this animal because they saw it as competing with the, the cattle and the horses. And because, of course, it fed Native Americans that were still resisting colonization. So mm. they intentionally tried to destroy those animals so that those tribes wouldn't have any way to support themselves. And they'd have to come to the United States for, for aid or at least not resist colonization anymore. So how did the timing of the developments in rifle technology kind of aid in this extermination? Well... It developed a hide market, like there had always been a hide trade, you know, since Europeans first came, and, and even before that, for these animals' hides. But with the development of the rifle technology, there were professional hide hunters who were Euro-American, and they would go out in these areas where the bison herd still survived, and they would, you know, bring outfitted wagons with them, and the hunters would go out, and they'd make what they called a stand. Basically, they'd find a group of maybe 20 or so buffalo from 150, 200 yards downwind, they'd pick off the lead cow, and then the animals would be confused, you know, as to what happened to the lead cow. And they usually wouldn't run unless they caught the hunter's scent, so they'd just stand there and the hunter could pick them all off and kill the whole little group. And then they, the hunter's partners, the, the skinners, would come out and skin the animals and try to preserve the hides. But there was just wanton waste at the time. You know, it's estimated when the southern herd was slaughtered, I think less than a quarter of the hides actually made it to market. The rest just rotted out there. And less than one one thousandth of the meat actually got used. The rest of it just rotted. So not only are they just slaughtering these beautiful creatures, but then they're not even utilizing what they provide for humans and the earth and all of that. They're just letting it rot. It's terrible. It was actually a huge... Trade after the bison were gone, there was a huge trade for their bones. Just, you know, massive mountains of bones were collected out on the prairie by settlers um, for small amounts of money per ton. And those were shipped to the east and used as fertilizer. Wow. So sad. Doesn't it break your heart to hear yeah. that? It just Yes, it does. Very much so. And you see them every day. Mm -hmm. And so it must hit home for you even harder. Yeah, because these are just such beautiful, majestic animals, as as was stated, and and um, and with the with the native culture, they use each and every part of the body to do. Each part has a purpose. Yeah. And to hear them to be so slaughtered, mm. mindlessly like that, kind of yeah, it kind of breaks one's heart. So it really does. It's just kind of also. I feel like it's a. The way the natives were treated at the time, too, is just like a kick in the gut. It's like we're already taking your land, we're taking your animals, and now we're just going to let them rot there. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the meat could have fed thousands of people. I mean, that's a lot of buffalo. Um, and it's an interesting parallel to me that the extermination of the buffalo kind of coincides with the attempt to exterminate the Native American. And in your writings, you mentioned that by 1874, more than 3.5 million animals had been killed over a three-year span, and the southern herd had been effectively exterminated, gone. So by 1883, the northern herd was gone too, and someone uh, was there to capture the gruesome extent of this slaughter. So tell us more about Mr. Huffman. L.A. Huffman um, grew up, I believe, in Illinois, and at an early age, he started learning how to do photography, and he moved out to Montana, I think late 1870s, early 1880s, and at that time... 
photography equipment was really bulky. So usually it was done in the studio. But in his case, he was quite, quite enterprising. He would take his camera out, not just in the field, but you know, he would take it into native communities on the other side of the frontier and photograph some really poignant things, also some really sad things. Um, you know, he's got a photograph of a steam train going through a teepee camp or going wow. by it. Um, he's got photographs of the native prairie being broken up by the plow, cowboys working out on the prairie, and of course, images of bison. Um, he's the only one I've found that took photographs of the original bison herd before it was nearly exterminated. He also participated in the hunt somewhat, but mostly he was there to photograph it. So then there's also a William Hornaday in 1886, and he set out to procure a set of bison to be taxidermied for the Smithsonian collections. What else can you tell us about him? The Smithsonian realized it didn't have a lot of great specimens of bison for its collections, and they realized that the animal was becoming extremely scarce. So Hornaday did a letter campaign around the United States looking for any bison herds that were still out there. And he was alarmed to find out there, there were almost none at all. Mm. So in 1886, I believe he went to um, Montana where there was a tiny remnant herd and, you know, it was way out beyond American colonization. So, I mean, it was way out there in marginal lands and his group found it and you know, there there are sad stories. Like they found this young bison that was alive, mm. and they tried to capture it live. So they chased it with a horse, hoping to exhaust it. And instead, the bison exhausted the horse. So they got a fresh <laughs> horse and chased it, and it exhausted that one wow. too. <laughs> but with the third horse, they managed to ride the bison to death. It died. Oh no! But um, they managed to kill twenty six of the last wild bison in the United States, and they did take at least one live animal back to the Smithsonian. And they put it on live exhibit there. And that had a huge impact, actually, because people, you know, with Hornaday's dialogue, people realized this animal's like just about to go extinct. And there had been movements in the United States before to pass laws to protect it, but they'd been pocket vetoed by the, you know, by the president or, or not passed by Congress. But with that story of Hornaday and with seeing the live animal there at the Smithsonian, it finally shifted public opinion so that they could you know, pass some laws to protect the animal. Wow. And then with that, it sounds like born out of that was these four families that came along. I mean, every story of injustice needs a hero, and it sounds like these four families came along to help. Yeah, there were a few families. It, it was it was more than four, but, but not a whole lot more than four. And they saw that animals, most of them lived out in bison country. Um, one of them was actually a bison hide hunter, and two of them were native families. And they saw how rare the animal was becoming. So they went out before it completely disappeared and caught some calves and put them into their lands, different places where they'd be safe. And um, out of that, they, they preserved some of the genetics from the herd in different areas around the Great Plains. And ultimately, those animals went on to be combined with others like at you know, the New York Museum to create herds. Um, Hornaday from the Smithsonian, the guy we were talking about earlier, he became the president of the American Buffalo Association. Wow. So even he started going, hey, we need to turn this thing around. He did. You know, he wrote that the bison haunted his dreams the last few he'd killed, and he hoped that they haunted the dreams of the other hide hunters, too. But he did something about it. As I said, he became the president of the American Bison Association with those animals that were surviving in zoos and also animals that these several families had collected they created conservation herds, and they had them, I think, at eight different locations by the time he stepped down from that position, different areas in the United States. And, and really, it's because of his actions, um, because of the United States passing a few laws, but ultimately because of those just handful of families that saw something bad and tried to do something about it, that the animal didn't go extinct. It's because of them that we still have wow. it today. Thankful for them, for sure. I love how he wrote about how tough the buffalo were. So what you were saying earlier, they were just so tough. And they were living in areas where even humans could not be found because they couldn't survive those elements out there, yet the buffalo could. So how many buffalo are living in North America today? According to the National Bison Association website, I think it's 362,000. Wow. At one time, there were possibly 89 living in the wild, maybe 500, maybe 1,000 living in the whole world. And now they've increased at least 362-fold since then. Wow. 
and that includes 1,700 private ranches and farms, and 20,000 live in herds owned collectively by tribes as well. Very interesting. So just as our ancestors were survivors, so were the buffalo, God bless them. I have a hundred questions about these <laughs> lovely creatures, so get comfortable. Um, what is the difference between the words buffalo and bison, and is there a proper term that we should all be using? Bison, so, you know, it's species name, it's bison, bison, or it's subspecies, is bison, bison, bison. But, you know, from scientific perspective, that's that's the correct way to use it. But colloquially, almost everyone says buffalo. So, yeah. you know, I think either one is fine as long as, you know, what context you're talking about. Sure. Thank you. And what are they like as a herd? Is each buffalo independent but sticks with a herd? Or are they sort of dependent on each other and work together? They they more like work as a herd. Of course, you're always going to have your they, the whole... Let's see, they determine the bull, of course, and, and they determine by, uh, the lead cow by a pecking order. Right. So it's basically, it's um, it's like they, comp especially the females with one male, <clears throat> um, they compete for each other for, the, for their place on the pecking order. And uh, as far as anything, um, they pretty much protect, um, they pretty much move together as a herd. Of course, the bull's going to go off to its place mm -hmm. as a single, I mean, as an individual for a while, but then he's always got his... Got his eye on his herd that he's that he's that he's got. So yeah, yeah. He's like, this, these are my women. Yeah, these are my women, and these are my babies. So just <laughs> so just stay, <laughs> stay away. Right, right. I wouldn't mess with it. No. <laughs> so so one bull can service about ten to twenty cows or so, and they have an even sex ratio. So for our herd, it's like exactly what Amy described. But in the past, what would happen is the bulls would fight and, you know, only the best would get to breed. And then at certain seasons, they would separate it off from the cow-calf herd. So there'd be these lone bulls or small groups of bulls and these huge cow-calf herds. And they would move around on an unfenced landscape in that way. But it, it's changed. Obviously, we have finite land on our farm. So you, you get what Amy was describing. So question for you. Do you use a vet? And what kind of vet deals with buffalo and how expensive is a buffalo vet bill where do you find buffalo vets well the one that we found was within the um was with our association um he owns bulls i mean he owns buffalo himself okay. so basically um but yes there are there are actually vets that do service uh, buffalo yeah the person she's referring to dr gerald parson he's one of the most recognized bison vets in the country and he lives right here in oklahoma He's always been really willing to share his knowledge with us and other people, too, to get them started, like when we were beginning in the business. And in terms of expense, I, you know, the, the most difficult part is transporting the bison mm -hmm. compared to cows. So it's usually a situation where the vet comes to the animals. So, I mean, obviously that's a little bit more expensive, but not necessarily more than somebody coming out to see cows if they did that. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Parson. Yes. Wow. Okay, do they have personalities? I would say they do. <laughs> yeah, what do, you, what do you notice out there? Well, um, let's see. Out there, I noticed that some, um, some of the buffalo cows are, um, are more friendlier than others. Um, once, uh, let's see, for example, one of, our, uh, one of our ones, we call her little girl. She's one of our sweeter ones because she used to show, her, show, show us her, her little ones whenever she, um, she had them. Really? She's yes. like, can I see my babies? Pretty much. She brings That's them out so and shows them off and everything. Oh. So. How many do they have at a time? Uh, one. Okay. So, and they can have twins, at, 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 um, but it's very rare for them to have twins. So. Yeah. That's so sweet. But let's see, and then there's some that's more wild than others. So um, then those are those ones that you really want to keep watching whenever you... <laughs> keep an eye on. Yeah, whenever you go among them, so... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> stay but, away from those. Yes, but basically, yes, I do think they have personalities because because you can just almost tell, so... Yeah, well, even when I was driving up, they were all kind of sitting near that electric fence and they saw me coming and some of them walked up and then some of them just kept laying there, you know, not caring that I was there. And I was realizing how close I actually was to them. Mm -hmm. They were so close to my car, but of course I was in awe of it and just soaking it in, getting to see them that close. So in a normal setting, I know that I would not normally come up to a buffalo. We need to all remember, you do not come up to a buffalo. That is true. But, 
So can you tell us about the buffalo wallows? How does it work? Why do they do it? Um, do you have a bunch out in your fields? Yeah, we've got wallows in every pasture out there. They do it for different reasons. Um, basically, they make it just by standing there and then flopping over on their <laughs> back and kicking their feet up in the air, doing that a few times. And they're such big, powerful animals, that'll dig the ground out like that pretty quick. <laughs> so there are these dish-shaped basins out there. A lot of people think that bison wallows are down in the, the low areas where it's wet, but they're not. They're always up on the dry hills. And when they do that, it creates lots of dust, and that dust gets into their coat, and it helps to protect them from insects. Wow. But they also do it as a display, like during the, the breeding season when the bulls are going to fight, they'll both, you know, roll around on the dirt and show how much of a dirt cloud they can make before they actually lock horns. <laughs> so smart. Their instinct is really strong, isn't it? From the sap to the dust and knowing that it'll help them. But I love those displays of buffaloness. <laughs> So where do you get your buffalo? We get, uh, let's see, we got ours at a, uh, at a bison, uh, Oklahoma bison auction well, back in 2012. That's where we've first gotten. Ones, yeah. Our first ones, yeah. But then there's yeah, other places. This association. Oh, okay. oh yeah. Bison She's representing today. Oklahoma yeah. Bison Association. Yep, there's an annual sale once in the state each year. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also from, pri- um, from private bu- buffalo owners and, I don't know, pretty much different ranches and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay, great. There are also, also large places like Nature Conservancy mm-hmm. or um, the National Park Service that get more animals than land, and they'll, they'll sell those at auction, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does anyone ever donate them to you? Like, maybe they thought they could handle owning a buffalo and realize that it's a lot more work than they thought? That happens sometimes. <laughs> it's never happened to us, but it does happen occasionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So people need to really think about it if they're thinking about getting a buffalo um yeah, yeah it's probably a big responsibility <laughs> they need facilities that will keep them in it doesn't necessarily have to be strong you know it can work with the animal psyche but definitely need something that will keep them in and then they need at least two animals because they're herd animals if you just have one oh, yeah. by itself it, it won't be happy oh. it won't do well yeah don't do that people okay so what are they like around you like when you come up to the fence or you're feeding or whatever it is what are they like around you they're always looking for food when we're feeding them. <laughs> uh, yeah, just give me the food and leave. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, no, but basically they're very curious animals. Yeah. Um, from what I can see, they they are very curious animals. They always want to know what's what's going on going on around them. At the same time, if there's like a huge bang, they are so curious that that, that they want to go see what's causing that bang. Oh. So. Oh really? So they'll yes. Over, what is that? We've been out there shooting our <laughs> rifle before, and here come the buffalo to see what we're doing. As close as they could to the fence. <laughs> it's funny that they're not afraid of it. They're not running away from it. They're trying to figure out what it is. We've yeah. gone out there before when we needed to call them and just start banging on the trailer, and here they come to see what's happening. Come to us. <laughs> That's amazing. But they, they are wild animals, and they are incredibly fast and powerful. So yes. like what we do, we do from the other side of the fence. If we got yeah. in there with them, even though we see them every day, they would yes. kill us. I mean, oh. you, you have to respect them as wild animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that no matter how tame they are, that they're still wild. Right. They still have that wild psyche no matter how, how long you've had them or how, how much that they have been handled by humans are still wild because they always they yeah. always will be. And we're not changing that sounds like no as we're much not. as we want to tame them and take them for a walk probably can't do that we don't want to change them because that's what's yeah. happened with cattle you know they can't take yeah. care of themselves most breeds mm-hmm. like that's True. part of what makes bison special is that hasn't been changed interesting i never thought about that do you find yeah. that do you think that they are smart that they're intelligent creatures or do you tend to think that they're just a little the, dopey <laughs> they're geniuses for what it takes to be a bison you know, yeah. for example, <clears throat> there's 220 prairie species out there, and they have their rumen, you know, which is the way their stomach works. It mm-hmm. can digest plant protein and cellulose in a way that a human stomach can't. But it has to have just the right bacteria and just the right plants in it. Like humans have no idea what they need, but the bison knows, okay, I need a little of this plant, a little of this one, and a little of this one. I mean, they're, they're very smart at being bison. Amazing. Yes. So we've got to talk about something very important. Uh, something that people may be afraid to ask, but I know that they're wanting to ask. Uh, let's talk about what my family calls pasture pudding when it comes to our family cattle. Poop. <laughs> Tell us about their poop and do you use it for fertilizer? So, you know, it's certainly got kind of a stigma, you know, in American society, mm-hmm. but it's, it's just part of the natural cycle. So if you raise the animals and a way where they're matched to the carrying capacity of the land and all of that, it, it's not an issue at all. 
Um, there, there's a whole suite of different animals and insects and birds and all that, that, that tear up those, you know, buffalo chips in no time. A lot of them bury it under the ground. So they're actually creating soil fertility and putting carbon in the soil. And it, it's not an issue in our pastures at all because we're we're in balance, so yeah. it, it breaks down quickly and gets recycled into the soil. Yeah, just mm-hmm. leave it alone, let it do what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I assume having that big old woolly coat on you twenty four seven must be brutal in the Oklahoma summer heat. So how do they survive that? Well, the first thing they do is is they shed their coat. You know, about this time of year, like. If you went out to see our animals right now, they look real raggedy, and it's because they're shedding off their winter coat. Yeah. And then in the summertime, they get these suntans, so it's just their bare skin for the back two-thirds of them. It's just real dark out there in the sun. Mm-hmm. They're, of course, adapted to the Ice Age, but they're also you know, pretty broadly adapted. So they used to live in Mexico before European contact and South Texas wow. and some really hot, treeless places. That being said, they do better in cold areas. Um, for example... Our bison don't calf every year naturally, yeah. like it, just based on the grass here. They'll calf about every other year, and that that's natural for them. Like if you go to Wichita National Wildlife Refuge, it's the same way there. Yeah. The reason for that is because the grasses here grow so fast because of the temperature. They don't have a whole lot of protein in them for volume. Compare that with like North Dakota, the grasses have a lot more protein there. So even today, the animals there get 150% the size of the animals here. In other words, they're like, half of as big again as the animals here and they calf every year so they do better up north but they're they're still adapted to oklahoma too yeah and they've been here a very long time generations and generations back so how about the winter how much cold can they stand 60 degrees below zero wow bring it on then (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening to native chalk talk Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.